really speak to our hearts today. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the Word of God is not a fable. It's not a myth. It's not a series of made-up stories that are not true to life. But we thank you, Lord, that your Word is truth. We thank you that your Word comes to us as this, the God-breathed um, communication from you, the revelation from you, Lord. So we pray, Lord, that you, this portion of your word may truly be understood by us, may it have a profound impact upon each one of us, and may our listening and responding to your word bring glory to your wonderful and great name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You don't have to answer this question out loud, but I'm just curious, have you ever witnessed a miracle? Think about it. Have you ever witnessed a miracle? We're coming to a text in Acts chapter 2 in which Peter and these other 11 apostles, they witnessed miracle after miracle on the day that the Holy Spirit was poured out. And they didn't merely talk about the mighty works of God, which the text says to us in Acts 2 that there was a talking about the mighty actions and works of God in languages of all these people gathered from all over the place there in the Roman Empire. They've gathered there on the day of Pentecost. They're not only hearing about the great works of God, they saw miracle after miracle. Not just two or three miracles. Not 30 miracles. Not even 300 miracles, I would suggest to you. They saw 3,000 miracles on that day. You say, what are you talking about? Well, let's read the text here. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 38. Now, it's not fair for me to start at 38, so I'm going to read 36, basically. At the end of his sermon, in which Peter has been asked, what does all this mean in terms of what has happened there on the day of Pentecost? You'll have to read that or hear the sermons from earlier weeks that I preached on. But verse 36, Peter is speaking. He says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, that is Jesus Christ, both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you, you yourselves, crucified. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and those were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Amen and glory, hallelujah. What a text of scripture. If you can't preach this text, then I should just sit down and be quiet and have nothing to say. We come to a text this morning in which we, we are dealing with an eyewitness account. You say, well, how do you know that? Acts chapter 1. Look what Luke says about it. He's been talking to all sorts of people, gathering his facts and data. It's an eyewitness record of what the Holy Spirit's powerful transformative work accomplished on the day of Pentecost, right after Peter had preached this sermon. And we are amazed, as we notice here, we come and we, we observe the fact that there are two important proofs 
we find in this text that the Holy Spirit applied the gospel to the hearts of the people who were there that day to hear that sermon. Number one proof is what I would call an internal evidence or, or an invisible thing that you can't really see, but we have a record. People have told uh, Luke that it really did happen. Because the Holy Spirit convinces many in this audience of their own need for spiritual transformation on the inside. Many of them were, were quickened in their hearts, and they savingly respond in faith to the call of the gospel. And at that moment, the Holy Spirit, you can't see these things now, the Holy Spirit unites them at that moment to Christ by faith. And they enter into the spirit life of the people of God in the church. That's the first one, and we're going to talk about that in more detail in just a minute. The second one is other proof of the Spirit's powerful working on that day in terms of transformation is more of an external visible proof because the Holy Spirit applied the gospel of grace to these transformed hearts in such a way that they joyously, not because they were forced to or that they were required to by some long list of rules, but they joyously participated in this kind of gospel community where you can tell, beginning in verse 42 and following, this is kind of outward evidence of sacrificial love, of sincere devotion to God and to each other as members of a local church. It's a beautiful thing to read those verses to the end of the chapter there. So let's break it down and let's look at, first of all, the gospel call. We find here a gospel call and that call is demonstrated by the entering into the spirit life of the church. Peter directed his sermon toward whom? Who's he speaking to on this occasion? He is speaking to people, this large crowd of religious people, predominantly Jewish. They are people who have traveled great distances. They've expended lots of money. They're doing what they are supposed to be doing to attend three of the annual feasts in Jerusalem, and here they are. They, are, they take their religious commitments seriously. And so he's speaking to them. The problem with these people is that only seven weeks earlier, the one who was the true Messiah, providing to them what they desperately needed in the payment of their sin, they rejected the true Messiah. They, matter of fact, many of them may have been in the crowd on that day that said, crucify him, crucify him. And so Peter is speaking to a crowd of people who come to this gathering sort of feeling pretty good about themselves, that they see themselves as better than many of the pagans who don't care about any kind of religious observances, and so they're probably a rather self-righteous in how they see themselves. And Peter proclaims to them the supremacy of Jesus Christ. I don't have time to review the sermon, you can go back and look at it again, but Yes, Jesus did die on a cross in utter shame and disgrace. Peter admits that. Yes, that did happen. But nonetheless, he was raised from the dead. He is not any longer in disgrace. He is the true Messiah. He is the one who is Lord and Master. And P Peter's point here to this crowd gathered with all these religious people is, all of you are going to be held accountable for your sin of rejecting Jesus, the true Messiah. Therefore, they desperately are faced with their need for forgiveness from God. And look at verse 40. I find it fascinating how Luke just, he just compacts this together and leaves out lots of details here. But we read in verse 40 uh, this comment, Many other words Peter solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Peter earnestly urgently, repeatedly pleads with them to respond to the call of the gospel. Be saved! Just a little parenthesis. Isn't this a wonderful illustration of the Spirit helping a man who was afraid to even say he was a follower of Jesus only a few weeks ago is now boldly standing up there saying to people, listen, you need to be saved. This is spirit enabled gospel witness put on display for all of us to be encouraged by this is how it's done encourage people to be saved 
after you've laid a foundation as to why they need it. And then notice what he says here. The biblical witness is clear. It's not enough to attend religious services. It's not enough to be a person who listens to sermons, whether on a Sunday morning in church or whether on the internet. It's not enough to learn facts about Jesus or to give alms to the poor because those people had done all those things and were doing all those things. But spiritual life in Christ does not begin until the Spirit of God breaks your heart of the pride that we all have that's the main problem between us and God. Notice the text, verse 37. The Spirit of God must pierce our hearts as we are confronted by and as the Spirit of God convicts us about our rebellion against God. You see, no one grows up as a Christian. I don't care who your parents are. I don't care how many times you went to church growing up or you may have been to church. None of us comes into this world as a Christian. All of us must undergo radical heart transformation. And Peter is directing his listeners who are under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They're beginning to feel the weight and begin to sense the fact that they have offended God by their choices, by their actions, by their, their attitudes toward God. And Peter directs them in their being under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and as those whose conscience now testifies that they are guilty. He encourages them to say, listen, you've got to find a, res a resolution to, this being to the fact that you are now separated from God by your sin. You've got to take a step and find, uh, receive what God has offered to you and respond to the gospel call. And there are three responses in this text. I want you to see this now. Verse 41. Those who received his word. So the first response to the gospel call, we, first of all, we have to receive the word of the gospel. Now this is one of those internal responses that we are called upon to make to the gospel call. And it is this, we must fully embrace the promises that God has made regarding Jesus in the gospel. Rather than relying on our ingenuity, rather than relying on our efforts, rather than relying on our own good works to earn favor with God, and to somehow then put God in our debt. Look, God, I've done this, this, and this, and this. Therefore, you owe me. You owe me to somehow give me what I need from you. No, no, that's not the way to come to God. Once we are convicted of our sin and we've been confronted with the truth of the gospel, we come with the call of the gospel to say what? We come to Jesus humbly on his terms. There is only one sinless, crucified and risen Lord and Savior, it is Jesus Christ. And there's only one who can save a sinner like you and me. We cannot save ourselves. And so receiving the word means that we come to Jesus fully surrendered. We receive the word. It means that we abandon all attempts to negotiate with God. You know, it's like bartering with God. Okay, God, I'm going to do this and this. And how about you do this for me? No, no. To receive the word means that we are declared that we are guilty and therefore we need a Savior and there's only one Savior, it's Jesus Christ. All we can do is come to him in faith. You see, God owes us nothing but eternal punishment in hell. But because of his great love, Jesus died in your place, in my place. Because of his great love, he was raised to life to prove that the payment that he made for our sins was acceptable to God. And to receive the word means that we take to heart Jesus' invitation, which we find in the gospel in Matthew chapter 11, those wonderful words where Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary. These people in Acts chapter 2 who are cut to the heart, they are weary. Their sins are very much weighing them down at this point. They understand they owe a huge debt to God. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's not talking about physical sleep here. 
How do you know? Keep reading in the text of Matthew 11. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, he says, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. That's another way of saying you shall find peace between you and God when you're finally made right and declared right through faith in Jesus Christ. He says, my yoke is easy, my load is light. The gospel lifts us from that heavy burden of our sin and guilt and shame before a holy God. And rather than viewing Jesus as an add-on in your life, the gospel call reorients our heart in such a way that Jesus becomes our most precious treasure when we come to him in faith. When we receive the word of the gospel, we know that we are a person who is being changed on the inside. And we have a new affection, a new love for Christ because we realize the greatness of his love shown to us first. So the first response to the gospel call is that which we do by what? Receive the word, believe the word, and place your faith in Christ. The second one is verse 38. Peter says, repent. Repent. How do we know a person has received the word of the gospel? The call of the gospel. Well, repentance is the necessary response to the gospel. It is the flip side of faith in Christ. Now, I have with me this morning a nickel... Uh, who's it? Tom, Thomas Jefferson? I don't know who's on the front of the nickel, but anyway, they've got all these uh, things they change all the time. So I have a nickel here. I also have a washer. Now, a washer is about the same size, both about the same color, both made out of metal, but obviously one what has what? The washer has a hole in it and nothing on, there's no f- uh, top or bottom. There's no faces on different sides. It's the same on both sides. A nickel has a face on one side and on this particular one has a monticello on the back. And so when we talk about faith in Christ, we're saying with, with a real coin, there's a face on one side, there's an image on the back on the other side of myself. Just like when we come to Christ, faith in Christ is one side of the coin, the other side of the coin is repentance. They both go together. What is repentance? Repentance is the idea of seeing a change in our hearts regarding our attitude to sin. Rather than making excuses about our sins, or rather than shifting the blame for what we do or don't do, for our wrongdoing before God, a repentant person's heart reflects a change in the attitude about offending God. By the way, it's an attitude that characterizes the Christian life. There's the initial repentance, but then there's a continual attitude of repentance. A continual expression of faith also, by the way, continues on in the Christian life. In a true true repentant person's life, they are grieving over their sin. This person will seek to turn away from sin because of their attitude changed toward it. They no longer delight in their sin. They realize it offends God, and they're turning now toward Christ, and they're beginning to orient their life toward serving Him. Rather than being primarily concerned about consequences that might come as a result of their sins, repentance is the fruit of a heart that's concerned about offending Christ. The Christ who died for them, who paid the penalty for that sin. Wayne Grudem, the theologian, has written in a theology book, he gives a definition of repentance. I've listed it in your notes there. Repentance is the heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of sin, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience. Years ago, I read the story of a man named Mike who lived in a community that was rather small, and he set up a shop on the, ex, on the um, um, fringe of town there, uh, and it was an adult shop. And here he was selling explicit uh, DVDs, uh, at the time, it was magazines and other forms of uh, pornography. And the local authorities were so fed up with this particular enterprise that they had actually charged him with obscenity. That's, this is a number of years ago, I realized, that no one ever does that anymore, unfortunately. 
but anyway, so this guy has this hanging over his head. He doesn't care. He's just trying to make some money. That's all he cares about. And soon after that, he was involved in an automobile accident. And he realized, even though he had suffered a lot of scrapes and bruises and had a couple of uh, uh, issues in his back, four discs that were ruptured, he realized he had a very close call. He could have died. And the haunting thought that went through his mind during this time after this accident was, had I died, where would I spend eternity? He just couldn't shake that question. It just kept coming back to him again and again and again. And so he did something he hadn't done since he was a little kid. He went to church. And some people had known who he was. They'd seen his picture in the local paper because of this obscenity charge. And they're looking at him doing a double take. But they're glad he's there. They welcomed him. And he heard the word. He heard of Christ. He began to sense the great conviction of his sin, how he's offended God. And he came to Christ that day. He trusted Christ. He surrendered him. And what happened? Well, he began to see the fruit of repentance. Soon thereafter, he painted the front of his store and he changed the name from Love World to Mike's Place. And soon thereafter that, he had a big fire outside the back of his business. And with some diesel fuel, he took all of the various forms of adult entertainment there, if you will, all of his inventory, the entire thing of pornography, he took all of it out back and had a big fire. Just kept hauling it back there, throwing it into this big bin and burned it all up. And in its place, he was so longing to have other people understand the glories of the gospel, he turned his little, into his little business there, the building, he converted it into a bookstore. And somebody said, well, why didn't you sell all that stuff and then buy some materials and get this thing off the ground? He said, listen, all that material was offensive to God. I don't want to use that money to buy gospel materials to make the gospel known. Here's a man who said what? His heart had changed toward his attitude of what he formerly loved and embraced and now his heart was radically different. His view of it was completely different. As a matter of fact, for the longest time in the corner of the parking lot, of the place that now calls Mike's Place, in the corner of the parking lot, people wouldn't even notice it, there was a pile of ashes there. Ashes from that fire in which he left purposely for the purpose of giving testimony of the fact that what? My old life is done. My old life is now ashes. I've repented of that. I'm now following Christ and serving him and him alone. That's what it means to repent. It means to have a change of attitude towards sin. That means I no longer love it and relish it. I'm breaking away from it and doing what I can to follow Christ. Have you ever seen the fruit of repentance in your life? You say, oh, I trusted Jesus at, at such and such time in my life, or I prayed and responded, or I you know, walked an aisle years ago. Yes, but is there the evidence of repentance in your life? Peter said, repent. Receive the word and repent. And then there's a third one. Now, let me, let's be very clear. This third one, in verse 37, 38, sorry, that each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Let me be very clear here. This is not something that's necessary for salvation. This is something as a matter of step of obedience to those who truly repent and have trusted Christ, then the command is be baptized. Bear witness to what's happened in your life in a public way. And so the receiving of the word and repentance, then they're commanded to, be have, to bear outer witness to the loyalty to Jesus Christ. And water baptism is the prescribed way that a Christian identifies himself or herself publicly with Jesus Christ. Yes, everyone is every believer is united to Jesus Christ by faith, and they're going to share in this amazing reality that as you come to Christ, you are joined to Him, and you share in His death to sin. So that in baptism, we practice immersion, and so a person is lowered into the grave, as it were, symbolizing the fact that they have been joined to Christ, 
and therefore their old way of living has died. My old identity has died. I'm no longer that old person anymore. I'm now a new creation in Christ. And the reverse is true. We also share, as we are joined to Christ, we share in His resurrection. And therefore we, in immersion, when you're now lowered into the water, you're now raised up, which, rec- which helps people understand and portray that there's a newness of life that the gospel is calling you to. doesn't mean you're perfect. doesn't mean that you have to do this in order to be forgiven. It is indeed a way of portraying the gospel to somebody and saying to them, listen, baptism is the God-sanctioned way to publicly confess Jesus Christ is my Lord. Now, no one is saved by being baptized. Be sure to hear me on that. There are some people that read this text and they conclude the opposite. You have to be baptized in order to be saved. That's not what the text is saying. And there are many other places in the Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 would be the best to completely refute such a, a wrong teaching. No one is saved by being baptized. But in, baptized, in baptism, excuse me, a Christian publicly celebrates the reality of being fully cleansed from sin. There has been a clean break with the past loyalties of that person's life. And instead, there's a new allegiance in the life of a Christian who's coming to be baptized. I want to make that allegiance to Christ known to any and all. According to Acts 2, verse 38, a Christian who has received the gospel call to trust in Jesus, who has repented of his sins, is required to bear witness to that change of heart by the outward act of water baptism. It's a matter of obedience. You say, oh, here we go with that Christian duty stuff again. i got to do this. i got to do that. My friend, I hope you understand. None of these people, in hearing such words, would have thought, oh, brother, I've got to do this. They would have thought, this is a radical thing for them to think about, this idea of baptism. They would think, I'm going to obey this because what? Because I love Christ who gave himself for me and loved me, and I am so grateful for what Christ has done, I delight to do the things that God commands me to do. Makes all the difference in the world. And So again, I raise the question, are there those among us who are people who have responded in faith, received the word, trusted Jesus Christ, they've repented of their sins, but they've never been baptized in water baptism? Why is that? Fear of man? Fear of water? Uh, it's, it's unclear. The text to me is very clear. It is an opportunity to express to all and confess Jesus as Lord, which is what Romans 10 says. We confess the Lord Jesus as Lord. You shall be saved. I think that's what he's talking about in the waters of baptism. Let me know if you're ready to take that step, and I'll be glad to start a class at any time. Notice here also in this text, and I cannot move ahead into our second point until I at least touch on these things. Because again, why do we want to walk in obedience? It's because we are a people who are tremendously blessed in the gospel. And those blessings, two of them are recorded right here. The first of is he talks there in verse 38, talks about the idea of forgiveness of sins. Those who are coming to Christ and respond to the call of the gospel and true repentance and faith, they receive the full and complete forgiveness of their sins. They are completely liberated from the penalty that they owe to God. Jesus paid that debt in full. And the record of our wrongdoing is wiped completely clean. I wonder, have you ever received that gift of full forgiveness in Christ do you know the joy that brings to your heart? Now, some of us, I'm afraid, because we are not fully embracing the gospel or we've never really understood the gospel, but some of us have our guilt and the past of what we've done or said, sometimes in secret, sometimes things that people know about. It's as if we're carrying around a ball and chain. It is anchored and locked to our ankle, and we just drag it around everywhere we go. Can't seem to ever get rid of this thing. It's heavy. It's burdensome. It is 
always reminding us of our past. It is always letting other people know. And there's a sense of which we go through life joyless, dragging this thing around. You say, well, some people don't drag it. They pick it up. They carry it around with them. It becomes part of their identity. And the gospel says what? The key is given to you by Christ. The key is the gospel. And the gospel says you must put that key into the lock on the shackle on your ankle, turn it, and it will be released from you. You will no longer have this ball and chain, your past, your, your sin and your shame and your disgrace of things that you've done that you know offend God and also may have offended many other people. You can walk at liberty. You don't have to carry that around with you any longer. You're no longer, because of the gospel, you're no longer defined by your past. And I find it amazing that if you look at scriptures well enough, and I've listed, I think, some in your notes there, I've listed some passages of scripture in which God is trying to help you get some mental pictures of how complete is this cleansing. How much of my sin is truly forgiven? Is it just some of it or is it all of it? And I don't take the time to read all these texts, but they are worthy to be read again and again where he talks about, God says, I'm going to cast your sins, I'm going to cast them into the sea. Now that is a metaphorical way of speaking to those people of that day that didn't have scuba diving gear if you cast something in the sea, it's gone. Never to be found again. It will never be discovered in that, in that understanding of that time in which it's written. Jesus also says, I've cast your sins behind my back. Meaning what? I'm not, I'm not focusing on those anymore. It's done. It's over. I'm telling you, my friends, why not respond in faith when the wonders of the blessings of the gospel are portrayed for us so clearly in this wonderful text of Scripture. There's a second blessing. I must go through that quickly here. The other blessing that's bestowed upon everyone who truly believes in Christ, who repents of their sin, verse 38, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Some of you say, oh, please, what's the big deal? I've heard about all this before. Oh, my friend, the more I've thought about this, it is a marvelous, absolutely incredible gift here. We who experience the heavy weight of conviction of our sin, we who understand because of the Holy Spirit's work in us to convict us, we long to make a break from our past and from our patterns of sin that offend God, and we are longing for help to live a new way. And now God says, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit who will take up residence within you. My own spirit is going to live within you. And he is going to enable you, as a true believer, to provide you with power and the enabling grace to somehow make different choices, to think differently, to act differently, to, to behave differently, to have different attitudes, and to connect the gospel in such a way that you have new motives as to why you do what you do. I mean, how can you get a greater blessing than that? When he says, I'm going to actually change you on the inside and help you. You're not on your own. You're not doing this by mere willpower. This is me working in you to give you a new heart and a new life. I love this verse in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. I would urge you to read it and meditate on it. He says, you were washed. There's the full forgiveness and cleansing. 1 Corinthians 6, 11. You were washed. You were sanctified, meaning what? You were set apart unto me. You now belong to me. You were justified. What does that mean? To be declared right with God. You're accepted now by God. You don't have to hide in shame. You're now fully accepted. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. What a wonderful blessing and privilege the gospel brings to those who repent and believe. No matter who we are, no matter what your background, no matter what your age, no matter your accomplishments or your lack of accomplishments, these gospel blessings are yours if you'll come to Christ. Notice what he says in verse 39 there. Peter says, they are for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. My friend, have you ever sensed 
the Lord calling you to come. I'll never forget the day where I sensed that in my heart. Come. Come, receive the word. Believe upon Christ. Repent. And therefore, after doing that, bear witness to that faith and that repentance by being baptized. Any and all, come. I want to look at the second aspect of the spirit life that's clearly taught in this text. This is more of a visible, something you can see, the outward manifestation of the Spirit's power and work, and that's where he created gospel community. Gospel community. This is where you find participation in the Spirit life in the church. Participation. You see, the gospel of the call must be personally received. We must individually appropriate the things that Christ has done for us. But the same Holy Spirit that unites us to Christ is going to do something more than that. He is also, at the same time we come and unite to Christ, He imparts to us the gift of eternal life, and we also are united together as members of the body of Christ. We're not just individuals who have this relationship with God, because the Christian life is no such, is no such thing as lone ranger Christian. The Christian life is not just me and Jesus, Enjoying whatever it is we can enjoy in this mystical kind of, you know, it's all just me and, me and Jesus. No, no. It is involved our knowing Christ personally, but it's much more than that. It is the Holy Spirit who now is going to powerfully work the gospel regeneration there on that day of Pentecost. Notice that it, it resulted in something in which there's this outward gospel participation with other like-minded believers. Notice that this participation in all these members in Christ's body, it did not just happen on an occasional basis. You know, like, okay, let's get together every so often, okay? Yeah, how about once a month? We just sort of have dinner together and we'll talk about Jesus together. No. These people are looking for as many opportunities as possible to spend time with each other. And it wasn't just superficial relationships. Notice that the Spirit of God is bearing witness that our hearts are alive and we are members of Christ's body. When the Spirit of God motivates us to pursue this pattern, to pursue a lifelong involvement with other believers, sharing of our lives together as we love God and love each other together. It's not just a, a, once, a once every so often a phase you go through in your life. No, this is a life, lifelong pursuit. And that's why I found the comment by one commentator, I think I put it in your notes, where he says, Pentecost birthed community. It birthed community, not just individual people, but a family together. And what characterized this communal life together? Again, this could be three different separate sermons, so you're getting the abbreviated condensed version. Here we go. What are the three traits of a real communal life where the Spirit of God is now working in the hearts of those people as members of the local church? Number one, there's learning. Learning. All of a sudden, you have added to the church of 120 people, 3,000 baby believers. 3,000 of them. They need what? Spiritual nourishment. They needed to be fed a healthy diet of nutritional, biblical truth. So, what did the apostles do? Man, oh man, they taught them the Word of God. They taught them truth from God, helping them understand the Old Testament, but also giving them new insights into Christ. Apostolic teaching. And this biblical instruction is necessary if there was ever going to be spiritual growth in the life of a believer. 1 Peter chapter 2 makes that very clear. He compares the Bible to milk, and he says, okay, act like a little baby who craves milk so that as you read the Word, the, the, the milk is compared to the Word of God, as you read the Word and ingest it and make it part of you, you will grow as a result. It's the Word. And people in the local church there are to share a steady diet of scriptural teaching. 
The Bible is to be taught. The Bible is to be preached, to be proclaimed, to be read, to be applied, to be shared. It's the scriptures that are commonly shared among us. And so what does Paul do to Timothy? Timothy's getting a little discouraged in ministry. He's thinking, oh, come on, this is, we got some challenges on our hands here. So Paul backs him up and said, listen, don't forget, the word of God is the word that really truly has come from God. It is God breathed. God is the author of scriptures. And therefore, he not only talks about the nature of scripture, he reminds him of the benefits of scripture. The Bible is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Okay, it's helpful for all those things. But what else about the Bible? He then goes on to say it's necessary. Why? Because knowledge of the Scripture is what equips believers to do every good work. You're not going to be prepared to serve and minister until the Word of God has become a part of your life and your thinking. And then what does he go on to say? It's not enough just to know about the Bible and how important it is in its nature and, and, and the value of it and, and its benefits. He goes on to say to Timothy, listen, preach the Word. Proclaim the word. Why does he say that? He says, because sometimes you'll need to reprove people. You need to exhort them. You need to uh, rebuke them. You need to, with great patience and instruction, help people understand what the word of God teaches so that we can know Christ and know the wonders of the gospel. Are you learning the word? More importantly, are you learning the word with the help of and benefit of other people of like-minded faith? Are you sharing the word? I'm convinced one of the most powerful ways we can disciple and help other people is to sit down with somebody, a fellow believer, and read a portion of the word and then just make observations of the text with each other. No planning, no complicated time. Just read the word, talk about it together, and then pray over that text of scripture together. It's powerful. Not fancy but it's powerful. And we learn best in community. What we learn alone, verse 43, what we learn alone, we are to share with other people and vice versa. They share with us. When's the last time you shared anything you gained from Scripture with somebody else? My friend, that's a ministry. And to learn from other people, that's a ministry. Now, very quickly, I'm sorry, 43 I said too abruptly. I meant 42. Excuse me. 43, I want to give a brief comment about this just to clarify something. 43 says, Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. I want to say, first of all, I think it's very important to understand the signs and wonders were happening through the apostles. Not everybody. I understand these signs and, signs and these works of power, <clears throat> miraculous powers, <clears throat> were given specifically to the apostles to verify that they were the authenticated real deal. They were the ones who were authorized to be the representatives of Christ, to speak the truth. Therefore, it's apostolic teaching. So it's all like a way of substantiating, yes, these are people you can trust. Look at the power God has given them to verify that they truly are real, genuine apostles. And therefore, I don't look for anybody in our day and age to have any of these kinds of works of power and miracles to substantiate who they are, because there are no first century apostles, as we understand apostles here. Okay, so anyway, just uh, Hebrews 2.4, if you want to read further about this, Hebrews 2.4 and 2 Corinthians 12.12 are other helpful parallel passages that confirm what I just said to you as understanding this particular uh, verse. No extra charge for that, okay? Let's uh, move on to number two now. The first one is learning. Next one is sharing. The Holy Spirit will apply the gospel of grace to the hearts of his people who naturally, apart from the gospel, before we were impacted by the gospel, we naturally are people who are what? Selfish and a little on the side toward greedy, if not envious of other people. And so we struggle with that, and the gospel says what? The gospel says over time we're going to be freed from the need to define ourselves by what we have and own. 
The gospel says, I don't have to have all this stuff in order to impress you, in order to be like I find acceptance because I have to have this stuff in order to be important and significant. No, the gospel says, I am significant in God's eyes. Therefore, this stuff is not something that controls me. It doesn't own me. And so therefore, look what, they, look what they're doing. Out of their deep concern for other people, many of them were out-of-towners. They had no place to go. They don't have a lot of resources. They're hanging around there. And so they what? They sell their stuff, and they're starting to give it to each other. Listen, I've got more than I need. Here, here. Here's some resources. I'm glad to help you. What a degree of commitment to practically helping the needs of their fellow believers. Isn't it amazing to read this text and think, wow, they really, they were quite generous. You see, the gospel brings about a loosening of the grip of our possessions. We need to learn that here in the West, don't we? We are a people who hang on to our possessions far too much. And they didn't hesitate to sell what they had to some of their church members who were going without. They did what they could to make sure everyone's needs were met. Now, parenthetical thought here. Please do not read this text and draw the conclusions. Aha, here are the seed thoughts of communism or socialism, and therefore everyone needs to get rid of all their stuff, and we need to be, have an equality among all of our people of what everyone has. No, no, because notice no one was required to sell these things, number one. Number two, they are not renouncing private property. You say, how do you know that? Fast forward to Acts 5, and they're starting to sell property again. It's their own property that they're selling. They own property, but they're choosing to sell it. And they're bringing it and saying, listen, I'd like to help other people who are in need. So the Bible here is not mandating this as a requirement. It is merely the, the free and spontaneous giving and sharing and offering their resources to each other as an indication of their hearts truly care and are compassionate toward those in need. It expands even in opening their homes. Did you notice that? They're opening their homes. They're eating meals together. And I believe that they, in a sense, they've rejected the idol that says, I want to live my life and just be comfortable. Because if you have people in your home, it's not comfortable. It's not something that doesn't require some work and inconvenience and clean up and preparation or whatever. Yes, it's all part of that, but it's done out of love. You do it because it's a wonderful joy to have other people and to learn from them and have them in your home. A laying down of their lives of each other, compassionate, sharing, and caring. This is not the kind of, oh, do I have to have these people over again? Twisting of the arm and guilt-induced, oh, here we go again. No. The scriptures talk about what? Cheerful giving. It is joyous giving. It is the giving of my heart and my home and whatever I have, I'm, I'm love to do that for you. It's amazing how the gospel changes people's hearts. And lastly, they learned to share together, and they were learning together, but also they worshiped together. They worshiped together. Their fellowship was not centered around sports teams. Their fellowship was not centered around political parties. Their, their fellowship was not centered around humanitarian efforts. They didn't sit there and talk about things that were in the front pages of the, of the uh, front or back side of the newspaper. No, their fellowship revolved around knowing, loving, and celebrating the gospel. And they kept gathering as a group, corporately, in the temple to seek God. The corporate thing is very important there. They don't just off, go off and do their own little thing. They gather together. They devoted themselves to prayer during those times. Verse 42. They're lifting their hearts together to seek the Lord. They're recognizing that the gospel every day, they need those blessings. They need each other. They need to be reminded of who they are in Christ. And they're not going to take for granted that these kind of, you know, I'm not just here because I've got the benefits of knowing, well, I finally have my get out of card free card, get out of jail free card. That's not what Christianity is about. It's just somehow removing the thought of the, Reality, they'll have to uh, appear before God and I might face eternal damnation. And therefore, the gospel card gets me free from that. Now I go off in my life and I do whatever I want. I don't have to worry about that anymore. No, the gospel says Jesus frees us from condemnation, yes, but he does so and knocks away all the things that were standing between us and God so that we might know and enjoy and find great delight in God. 
As John Piper says, God is the gospel. <laughs> it's not just a get out of jail free card. Christ did all these things so that, 1 Peter 3.18, that we might be brought to God, to enjoy God, the one who made us for himself. We were saved that we might have fellowship with God and delight in knowing God. And therefore, these people who gathered there, they were not delighting in the fact of, oh, look at this great number of people. Or Peter saying, oh, look at this impressive you know, result of this sermon I got. No, they're not delighting in themselves. They're delighting in God. God who was saving people and drawing them to himself. They were gathered together to celebrate the greatness and glory of their God and King, Jesus Christ. May we do the same. Let's pray. Father, as we have taken the seeds of your word today, we have scattered them. We have scattered the seeds that are the gospel call to religious people and to rebels. We have called them, Lord, through the gospel to be saved, to put their faith in Christ, to repent of their sins, and then in obedience to evidence the fact that that's truly real in their hearts, we've called them, Lord, to be walk through the obedience in the waters of baptism. Lord, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, just like you did in Peter's sermon, I pray, Lord, you would apply this sermon to the hearts of anyone who's here today who's never felt that kind of weight of their sin and known the glories of trusting Christ and repenting of their sin and enjoying a new heart and to be changed on the inside, be set free from their past sins and to be given the privilege of being a child of God by faith. Lord, I pray that you would draw them to Christ. Don't give them any measure of comfort and peace until they make things right with you. And Father, also I just continue to pray that you would cause us as a church to be under the influence of your Holy Spirit to carry out these kinds of outward manifestations of participation in the life of the church. That there might be some among us today, Lord, who have never joined the local church. They're not even members. They're not committed. They've never entered into the covenant community. They're just standing on the outside, looking in, participating on, a, on some scale, but not really fully committed. Lord, I pray that we have many who would say, I want to be a part of a committed fellowship of believers gathered in a local place who are learning, who are sharing, and who are worshiping together for the glory of your name. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.